0: Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And get fired up. Amen. Amen. We're in, what book, what book are we in? In our journey through the Bible. We are in Romans, and we are in the meaty part of Romans. It's all meaty. Okay, but Romans uh, 8, where we're at now, 7 and 8, this is, this is the fillet, this is the tenderloin. This is the men's night out steak of the book of Romans, all right? Yeah. And uh, quick review, after Paul has explained and proven, demonstrated, uh, through history, through observation, uh, through the written word of God, that all men are sinners, He spends some time specifying, making the point that that includes the Jews. It includes Israel, absolutely includes Israel. And that uh, circumcision doesn't cover them. It doesn't count towards salvation. It's important under the covenant. It meant something to the Jews, but it didn't save them. That they are no more saved through the act of circumcision uh, than anybody can be saved through any work. Um, it, It is righteousness that is necessary for salvation, and uh, all men recognize that. He, you know, they, he makes that point as early as chapter 1, that we all recognize there is such a thing as righteousness, as right behavior. And if we believe in God, and we believe in his standard, we, that, that, that's what we strive for. We want to be righteous so that we can, so that we can be saved, so that we can be with God. And uh, Paul says the bad news is none of us can be righteous enough. The righteousness that is necessary for salvation, for right standing with God, can only come to us as God gives it to us. God himself declares us righteous on credit by faith. That's the point of his whole going into the history, the story of Abraham and the child of promise and the faith of Abraham and Sarah. It says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. We do not become righteous. Nobody can, nobody ever has been righteous by keeping the law. The law was there to spell out exactly what unrighteousness looks like. All right? So, uh, the problem is, if, if, if God's standard is righteousness... Why is it that we are unable to keep that standard? Is it because God is unfair? Is it because he set the bar too high? No, the problem is we were born with something called the sin nature. We inherited it from our first father, Adam. Now this is clear all through the Old Testament. What's special about Romans is this is where Paul is spelling this stuff out. If you have been a believer for any length of time, you know the doctrine of original sin. You understand that the fall in Genesis chapter 3 is what introduced sin to the world, and it's why there is still sin today. It's why sin is present in the life of every man, woman, and child in history. It is because of Adam, but Paul spells it out in these early chapters of Romans, that in Adam all sinned. But, he says, that just as in Adam all sin, just by being born, those who are born again in Christ become righteous. In Adam all die. In Christ all are made alive. And in chapter 7, then, he talks about the obvious struggle. If this is true, because this is the, the point he's making... The key is not to try harder. The key is not to do better. The key is to receive a new life, to recognize that you're already dead in your sin. Just as God declared in Genesis, the day you eat of this tree, you'll die. Now, they didn't drop dead physically at that moment, but they died spiritually at that moment. And as we'll see here in just a second, it wasn't just them that suffered, and it wasn't just us that suffered. But if the key then is not to try harder, but to receive this free gift of eternal life, if what happens when we receive salvation is we receive a new spirit by the Spirit of God, and if God looks at that, looks at us in Christ and says, you are righteous now, then why do I still sin? Why do you still sin? Because we do, don't we? And uh, so he, he he's... Chapter 7 is very famous for this because this is when he he cries out, what is happening? I'm looking. I recognize that the law is good, and I recognize that righteousness is a free gift of God, but here's what I find when I look at myself, and for that matter, when I look around, here's what happens. I make a decision to do something good. I don't end up doing it. And I swear off something because I know it's bad, and I wind up doing it again. Why is that? If I've been given a new life and it's righteousness, why do I keep doing that stuff? Doing the stuff that I, the very things that I tell myself and I tell God, I'm not going to do it anymore because I know it's wrong. And I do it. And I'm determined to do the right thing. And I wind up not doing it. How come it's like that? And the answer is that our body has not yet been redeemed we are still carrying the same flesh around with us that was ours before we were born again. Uh, I've, I've got a new spirit. I don't yet have a new body. This is the same flesh, and that flesh is still attracted to carnal desires, to sinful deeds. And we can make up our mind to accept the fact that God has indeed saved our spirits. And since that His, uh, his abundant grace and mercy saves us by faith, not our works, we also recognize that our works cannot unsave us. You understand that? We recognize from this passage and from the Spirit of God bearing witness ourselves that my salvation, if I'm secure in my... How many of you know you're saved? You know know that, that Christ has saved you and you have received that free gift of eternal life because of faith in Jesus Christ. We know that, right? And we know that it is. The only thing we had to do with any of that was simply to believe it. It was... It was God's grace that saved us, and the only way we receive that grace is by faith. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians, among other places, that even the very faith we need to access that grace is a gift from God. The faith itself is a gift from God. So it's all God, right? So we recognize it wasn't our works that saved us, and so then what the devil does is he tries to get us under condemnation by saying, well, if you were really saved, you wouldn't sin." And then Paul is telling us here, no, your, your, your sins, your, your, just as your uh, deeds didn't save you, your deeds ain't going to unsave you. It's the Spirit of God that saved you, and he's was, he was going to keep you saved. But it's still going to be a struggle. Why? Because we're dragging this dead man around with us in the flesh. Okay? Now, the question then that Paul brings up more than once, because it's that important, is that... Uh, Since the abundance of God's grace is demonstrated by his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness in the face of sin, then shouldn't we just go on sinning? Why don't we just stop struggling? We'll just sin all the more, and that'll make grace that much more abundant. Because that's when we really experience his grace and mercy, right? We know that, hey, my my deeds didn't save me. My deeds ain't going to unsave me. It's hard not to sin. So why don't we just sin and let God's grace just continue to be abundant? What's the answer to that question? Is it yes or no? It's no. It's no. But how do we do otherwise since we're dragging this sinful flesh around with us? We know that that's not the right thing to decide to do. But Paul himself has said it's a struggle and then he answers it. The answer, the key, the conclusion then is to walk in the spirit. Walk by the spirit. The infilling of the Holy Spirit is the key to victorious living. And that's best summed up in Romans 8:11 where it says if the same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. Who dwells in you? As I said last Sunday, and as I said Wednesday, this verse is not talking about the general resurrection. If you read this verse uh, isolated from its context, and, and, and certainly, I mean, you can read that 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 is a true statement. The fact that God raised Jesus from the dead bodily, physically, and promises to do the same to us. Uh, we look back, well, he said he was going to do that to Jesus, and he did it with Jesus. He says he's going to do it for us, he's going to do it with us, yes. But this verse is talking about he will quicken, he will make alive your mortal bodies while we're still here. That it won't be a matter of dragging this dead sinful flesh around with us. We are going to live victoriously. We're not going to walk. We're not going to let the flesh lead the way. Okay? And and the picture that, that emerges is of a spirit that is sensitive to God, and flesh that is sensitive to carnality and sin. And so where's the battleground? The battleground is the mind. And the conclusion then is if you set your mind on the things of the flesh, you're going to walk after the flesh. If you set your mind on the things of the Spirit, you're going to walk after the Spirit. So it really is a matter of what we do consciously to set our eyes and our minds and our hearts on God. This is all review still. Then he goes on in, uh, in chapter 8 to point out that thanks to Adam's fall all of creation is suffering. All of creation is in bondage to sin because man, certainly the earth uh, because God put man in charge of the earth. He gave man dominion of the earth. He, uh, he told him. He didn't it wasn't just go forth and multiply. He said fill the earth and what? Subdue it take dominion over it. I, I kind of joke about this, but I'm kind of not joking. I, I, I like working outdoors. I like mowing the lawn and cultivating my garden because this is me in the physical act of subduing the earth. If I let that yard go, it's going to produce weeds. It's going to get ugly. Uh, and my, my vegetables aren't going to grow because weeds are going to choke them out. But I go out there and I dig up the weeds and I water and I plant and I, and I compost and I, and I mow and all this stuff. And I am subduing my little corner of the earth right? And this is, all creation is groaning because since we were in charge of the earth, when we bowed down to Satan in Adam, guess what? All of the earth came under that same bondage. And now he, he goes on to, he talks about how, all, well, let's just read this. It's better. Paul says it better than I can. In Romans chapter 8, let's just read this in, uh, starting in verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation... Eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now he ties two things together here. One is... This beautiful picture of the earth, still in bondage to sin, still suffering the corrupting effects of the sin of man, looks to what? It looks forward to redemption. But what does creation see? What does the earth see first as evidence that it too will be redeemed from that bondage? It looks at us. We are the first fruits of that redemption. And I like to point out that it's not just the earth, it's not just nature, it's people. It's people. People really, you can preach the gospel and we absolutely all should. What do we do here at Living Word? We live the gospel and we preach the gospel. But people are really only going to hear the preaching after they see you living it. They should be inspired. They should be curious. They should be stirred up by something that is different about you. They should be able to begin at least to observe the effects of redemption in you. Right? So he's saying all creation is excited because, look, 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 the sons of God are being made manifest. We're going to be redeemed just like the children of God. And then, he says, just like that, we are looking forward to the redemption of our bodies. We recognize that our redemption, the work of redemption, is done. But the manifestation of our redemption will be complete at the general resurrection, when we receive new, glorified, incorruptible, eternal bodies. Heaven is not just a place of disembodied spirits. When Jesus rose from the dead and appeared, he appeared in the flesh. He ate. Uh, He was tangible. He could do things and travel in ways that he couldn't beforehand. But we're going to have a body like his that's going to be freed from a lot of the current limitations. And that's good. And this is something that is so important because Paul and Peter and John, but it's all through the Holy Spirit, you understand. We read so much in the Word that has to do with with living in the here and now. And as I mentioned, uh, I think last Sunday, yeah, Judaism is a very here and now religion. You don't read a lot, it's there. You don't have to dig, dig, dig. But the emphasis is always on the blessing here and now. There's not an awful lot in there about heaven and the sweet by and by. And of course, uh, we read in New Testament writers, and there's so many things about how we live now, not just you must live this way, uh, and it's going to stink, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be rotten, but you'll all go to heaven someday. There's things in there about living victoriously, enjoying the healing power of God, enjoying his abundant provision, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. There's no better way to live in the here and now than as a Christian. But, Paul reminds us elsewhere, but, but here, since this is where we are, uh, that really what we're looking forward to hasn't happened yet. When our bodies are redeemed, when our, when our redemption is made completely manifest, that's what we're really looking forward to. Now, when people talk about, and including me, well, you know, go into heaven when we die, uh we will get into that a little bit more probably probably the best place to address it is in, in some of the later epistles like in thessalonians but certainly when we get into revelation we're talking about last things and the judgment uh but when i say you want to go to heaven when you die you want to go to or, or go to hell when you die everybody wants to go to heaven but it's not it's, it's as simple as that you know people talk about living living uh forever in heaven with god well the bible doesn't say that the bible says there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth right Uh, well where do we go when we die here's what it says uh, that to depart is to be with Christ to leave the body is to be with Christ right Uh, so we know that whatever happens at the moment we die we are with Christ we don't go into soul sleep we don't go into an isolated place of waiting we are with Christ and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven now do we stay in heaven forever doesn't look like it looks like he creates a new heaven and a new earth doesn't matter it's going to be great (laughs) Uh, people have all these ideas and some, some, even some dogmatic statements about heaven. Now I'm getting off track here, so help me remember where we were. We were somewhere in Romans, right? People make these dogmatic statements about what is, what's heaven going to be like, who, who's there, what's there, is my dog going to be in heaven, is my cat going to be in heaven, is my kangaroo going to be in heaven, whatever. And, and there's been uh, arguments and people getting offended over the years because, well, some people say, well, heaven wasn't created for animals, it was created for people. Stop worrying about details like that. Well, wait a second. Are we going to live in heaven or are we going to live on earth? Here's what I can tell you. Whatever it is like in terms of the details and the specifics, you will not be there saying, I think I said this just recently before, uh, you will not be there saying, Wow, heaven is great. It would only be better if. Or you won't be saying, What, we're going to be living forever on this new earth that God created? That's great, but kind of thought we were going to live in heaven. Or... I love heaven. I like it like ninety nine. It would be hundred if my dog were here. And maybe your dog will be there. I'm not dogmatic about that. Don't oh you're one of those dogs don't go to heaven, huh? I'll tell you what, all dogs don't go to heaven. That's a lie. And certainly not all cats go to heaven. We have three indoor cats, and I'm only convinced that one of them is saved. King. Yes. <laughs> and even King is selfish. King fights the flesh. He loves to be pet. And so you think, that's great, he's a cuddly cat. But when you stop petting, petting him, he bites your fingers. That's working out that salvation. Anyway, whatever this life is like, it's eternal life with Jesus. And it will be enough. It will be glorious. It will be more than we can imagine. There will be nothing disappoint, disappointing about it. The only thing, the only, only mention, you know, it does say he'll wipe away every tear. And I believe there will be tears at, at, at a time. Whether it's a time where our lives are being judged, when we look back and think, oh, how I could have done this differently. How my entrance into heaven could have been more glorious. And certainly I think there will be tears when we realize who's not there. But God will wipe those tears away, and we'll cry no more. And we won't be missing anything. We won't have any ideas to make heaven better, wherever it is. Okay? Enough of that. Paul's saying, as he, you know, he'll say it another way later, he'll say, you know, if we have hoped in this life only, if we have trusted in this life only, we are of all men most miserable. And this is the guy that makes the case that the Christian life is the way to live, right here and now. But he's saying, no, what this is really all about is after the here and now. We're awaiting the redemption of the body, and that doesn't happen this side of the grave. All right, so then, now let's move on. In uh, verse 26, still in Romans 8, says this, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the heart hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God and we know that all things work together for the good of those who love who love God to those who are called according to his purpose now let me address this thing uh, first couple of verses there about groanings i do not think this is a specific reference to praying in tongues but i do think it includes the concept of praying in tongues what say, there's certainly a similarity there all right when we when when uh you know, preview here Sometimes I just can't wait. Uh, and it's the next book, right? 1 Corinthians? That's, that's right after Romans, right? So we'll get in there. We'll get in there before you know it. We'll be talking about the gifts of the Spirit. But when Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, especially in 1 Corinthians 14, when he's talking about praying in tongues, uh, he's talking about when we pray in tongues, now he differentiates, a little preview, especially for those who haven't been here for a very long time, he very clearly differentiates between the gift of public utterance of tongues and praying in tongues. Very clear and stark difference. But he says in in, in chapter 14, I'll I'll pray in tongues. I'll pray in the Spirit. Now when I do that, he says, my mind isn't fruitful. Even I don't understand what I'm saying. But, he said, it edifies my spirit. Now if I'm going to be up in front of people, I'd rather say one word in English than a thousand in tongues. But when I'm praying, I will pray with the Spirit and I'll pray with my mind too. Because when I pray, it's going to benefit my understanding, and it's going to build up my spirit. So he indicates that when he's praying in an unknown tongue, he doesn't understand it. There's some things, and I think a great illustration, this isn't doctrine, this isn't Bible, this is a good way of illustrating it. I know I've shared it before, but my mom uh, told a story many, many years ago, decades now I'm sure, where she was uh, really just felt moved in her spirit to pray for her brother, my uncle. And so, and she knew some things that, that he was fighting, some things that were going on in his life, and so she just began to pray about those things. And when she said amen, she, said, she just felt this stirring. She, she, she knew she hadn't prayed for what she knew to pray for. So she thought, well, maybe there's this. So she prayed about that, prayed for his family, prayed for his kids, prayed for his, his, his relationships, uh, uh, some other things that she knew he was struggling with, and, uh, and still couldn't get the release. So she switched over and started praying in tongues until she felt like she had prayed what she needed to pray, but she didn't know what she had prayed, until he called later to say he'd had this freak accident. He he was at work, he was going down these stairs, and he just misstepped, and he fell down these stairs, but reached out to catch himself, and when he did, he put his arm through this window, and it just laid his arm open, and he very nearly bled to death, or came close to, to, to this. He was in real danger of that. He had to tie his arm off and get himself to the hospital, and it was a miracle that he survived. But she finds out this is what she was praying for. Now, and this is, and so what Paul's talking about here, again, in this verse, is he talking about tongues? I'm not convinced he's just, certainly not just talking about tongues. He is saying, though, that there are times, number one, when we don't know what to pray for. And there's other things, and I think this is even closer to the heart of what he's saying here. We don't know how to pray for the things that we know we should pray for. Because there are things that the Bible tells us we should have. Things that we should believe for. And sometimes we don't know how to ask. We just know that these things are missing in our lives. And have you ever done this? Now we're a faith church. And we believe that it's important to know how to pray. You know, when, when the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. He didn't say, oh, just groan. Just pray in tongues. Don't worry about it. He taught them. Number one, don't turn it into a, a ritual. Don't just say the same thing over and over Uh, pray after this manner then he gives them a model a a sort of a template that they can model their prayers around he taught his disciples to pray and uh james says the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man avail much well what's an effectual prayer that means there's such a thing as an ineffectual prayer right an ineffective prayer and and uh first john 5 14 15 uh, if we uh ask anything according to his will he hears us so it's important to know the will of god and to pray according to his will so we can know how to pray, but have you ever reached this point I started to say that because we're faith, we're faith people, and we believe in the power of the words and praying correctly and praying in faith. And so sometimes it might seem like a bad confession to say this, but just let me know, have you ever been in that position because I have, where something hits you and you realize you're not walking like you should, you're not experiencing manifestly the things that God has promised, And instead of immediately addressing that and saying, in Jesus name, it's going to be this way, have you ever just gone, "Oh." Has anybody, anybody ever done that in, in your prayer time? Ser- seriously, raise your hand if you have. That's a lot of you. You want know that? Is? That's a groan. Oh, oh, and, and maybe, maybe during praise and worship, or during a time of, of personal uh, worship or devotion, you're just maybe bombarded with a sense of deep, maybe, maybe. All at once, you realize, oh, wow, uh, there's still unsaved friends over here. There's still this family. There's still this unpaid bill. There's still this doctor's appointment. And, oh, maybe, maybe one application to that verse is sometimes we don't know where to start. But when we groan from our spirit, it's not a, and here's the difference. The world, they find themselves confronted with these deep needs and sense of loss. They might go, oh, but they'll usually follow it with a cuss word. Oh, mm-hmm. our groaning in the spirit, Paul says, at that moment, what? We're, it's all again. It's a matter of the heart. Am I groaning because just in pure uh, sense of being overwhelmed? Am I groaning in depression, or am I trying to cry out to God and I just don't yet know what to say? If my thought. And my heart, when I'm groaning, is, oh God, that's a good starting place. And Paul says, the Holy Spirit himself prays through us in those moments. The extraordinary thing about it, and I think the central uh, point of these two verses, is that you know he's made this point again and again. Your works aren't going to save you. Your works have nothing to do with your salvation. Your works are important he'll talk more about that in the later chapters of Romans but they're not important in terms of getting you saved because they can't save you your works can't keep you saved so what's important so what do we do well we trust God and we pray and now there's this extraordinary truth that you know what even the prayer part God's doing most of that too it's his righteousness that puts you in a position to pray and there's so many times we're not sure what or how to pray and guess what God says, I'll take over. I'll I'll use you. I'll use your groans. I'll use your tongues. I'll use use this moment, and I'm the one that's going to be praying through you. Does the Holy Spirit know how to pray perfect prayers? When we're talking about the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, when the Holy Spirit prays through us, is he making mistakes? Is he praying a a prayer that is not a faith-filled prayer? No! These are good prayers. And praise God that he prays through us like that. Now, this uh, last verse in Romans eight twenty-eight, very, very famous, popular verse. Let me read it again. We know that all things work together for, for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, uh, unfortunately, this verse has been stretched in its application to say something that it's not meaning at all. What people very commonly take this verse and apply it to is every bad thing that happens god did this for a reason it might look bad to you but god caused this accident killed this child brought this horrible need or whatever this situation about because ultimately he's doing it for your good that is not what this verse is saying In fact, a better translation in the New American Standard says this, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say he's causing all things, that he can take anything and cause it to work for your good. He will bring good out of bad even when he didn't cause the bad, which he didn't. It's like he's always one step ahead of the devil. He's one step ahead of you, your bad decisions. You know, everything happens for, I'm one of my favorite uh, little memes or whatever that, that pops up from time to time. Everything happens for a reason. And sometimes the reason is you're stupid. Right? Well, everything happens for a reason. Yeah, everything happened for a reason. <laughs> and this happened because you did this stupid thing. And we need to own it. And admit it, confess it, and let God take it and turn something good. This is a little bit of a weak illustration, uh, and, and it's not mine. I got it from somebody else, so I'll call it weak, boldly. Uh, but I still loved it. It kind of resonated with me, uh, talking about uh, when Samson was walking down the road. You remember this? Back in the book of Judges, he's walking down the road one day, he's walking home, I think, and a lion came out and attacked him, just jumped at him, and he caught it in midair and tore it in two. One of these great feats of strength, but it only takes place over the course of a couple verses. And then later, when he's walking down the same road, what's he find in that, the, the carcass of that lion? found some honey. Now, this is why it's a weak illustration. He shouldn't have touched the carcass, because part of his Nazarite vow was he wasn't supposed to touch a, a dead body of any kind. But the thing it illustrated, and this guy pointed out, is that out of the very framework of the thing that tried to destroy you, God will bring the sweetness of life. And there hanging in the ribcage of this lion that was leaping at Samson to kill him was honey, the sweetest thing on earth. So God will do that. He won't cause everything, but he will cause everything to work out for your good, even the things that try to destroy you. What's the key in context? What, is the verse, what are the verses saying right before that? The key is to stay in prayer to constantly, consciously be casting our care upon him even if all we can do is groan, groan to God. And he will cause everything to work out for the good of those who love him. We're called according to his purpose. Now, let's keep moving. I've got a couple more things I want to talk about and we've got to get out of here because our cars are turning into ovens right now, right? <laughs> you probably left yours running with the air on, didn't you, Russ? That's two Sundays in a row, I, I now, let's, uh, let me read a couple of verses here because now we're going to open up the can of predestination. you excited? We're not going to dump it out. We're just going to open it today. In, uh, in verse 29, still in chapter 8, it says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now that word predestination there sets off alarms with a lot of people. Does for me? I am not a Calvinist. I couldn't even tell you in great detail what a Calvinist believes, but I know uh, I know enough to know I'm not one. And when I say Calvinist, there are things. And I'm not dissing John Calvin, and I'm not dissing Calvinists. Okay, I'm not saying if you believe if you're a five point tulip Calvinist that you're that you're a her- heretic we just disagree about some details that's all all right I'm, some of my best friends in the world are calvinists they're just wrong and they're going to hell no they're not going to hell they're going to heaven but the 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 sticking point of uh, of a hard hardline calvinist is is just that you have absolutely nothing to do with whether you are saved or not god chose you beforehand he chose you for his reasons. It's not your decision. It's not anything. God will save who he'll save. He'll damn who he'll damn. And it's all for his glory. It's all for his purposes. And that, to me, it flies in the face. I we're going to read. We're not going to get there today. But here in chapter 9, we are going to get into some things that, that are tough to explain other than that viewpoint. But we're going to explain them. They're, they're tough, but they're, but they're not impossible. We're just not going to get there today. Make sure You might want to read ahead. And then you can sit there and say, we'll see how Pastor Scott really does handle this. How much of this is he going to have to sweep under the rug? You'll see next week. We're just not going to sweep it under the rug today. The, uh, the, the, the thing is, it flies in the face of too much other scripture. Even if you can read a, a chapter or part of a chapter, as we're going to next week, where it says, wow, this looks like nothing other than God picks and chooses who's, who's saved for no other reason than just the counsel of his will it almost seems uh, capricious it seems uh, it, it's on a whim and certainly god doesn't have to explain himself to us but there's too much other stuff in there about preaching the gospel and convincing and urging people to accept to believe again we don't earn it but certainly people are talked into it they are brought into the kingdom of god and yes it's god doing the work through us but our will really does factor into this. all right? It's that curious balance between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Both are true. But, when it, but in this verse, when he's talking about predestination, he's not talking about, ah, he predestined certain people to go to heaven and certain people to go to hell. He's simply talking about those who come to him, he has a, pre, he has a destination in mind for them. When you came to Christ, he already predetermined that you are going to be like Christ. It's another way of saying that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He didn't just save you and leave you there. Ah, he, had, he predestined you to be conformed into his image. All right? He's going to justify you. He's going to glorify you. When it says he also glorified, have we been glorified yet? No, this is speaking prophetically. But Paul can talk about it in the past tense because it's God's promise. It's as good as done. We'll come back to that. I don't want to give that short shrift. We will come back to the topic of predestination, as I said, in the next chapter. But, and I want to go ahead and get into the next chapter, but we're just not going to get very far into it. Because now we, it, there's an interesting shift that takes place in this book. Uh, in chapter 9... You know what? Let me finish this. I can't believe I almost skipped this. In uh, in verse uh, thirty-one, let's read the rest of this this passage because it's beautiful. You ought to have it highlighted, outlined, something. In your Bible, so that your eyes just go immediately to it, because it's glorious. In Romans eight thirty one, what shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. He lays out this beautiful case that it is God who saved us, that we are already beginning to manifest the results of that salvation, the first fruits of redemption. And it should be, and can be, and is in many cases, so obvious that creation itself is looking at us saying, that's going to be us someday. And he stresses again, and this is God doing the work. Sometimes you don't even know how to pray. He's going to pray through you. This God doing the work. He had a plan for you when you got saved. He didn't let you pray the sinner's prayer and then let you stumble back into sin. No, he's got a plan. He's going to complete that work. He's going to make you like Jesus. And since all that is true, and since it's God doing the work, why should we be afraid of anybody else? Who's going to bring a charge against you? Who are they going to make the case to? They're going to go to God and accuse you when God himself is the one who justified you? (laughs) Man, man. And who's going to condemn you? What are they going to condemn you to? Death? No. Christ already died your death. It is Christ who died. And then guess what happened? He rose from the dead. So he, himself, he who died for you is the one who can stand there and intercede for you. When the, when the accuser comes, going before your judge who is your justifier and says, they did this. They deserve to die. Jesus stands up and says, they already died. They died in me. And you don't have to hear it from somebody else. You're hearing it from me because I rose from the dead. And since all that is true, how is God going to hold anything back from us? If he paid with the life of his son, how is he going to not freely with him uh, give us all things? What's going to separate us from God, considering that it is God himself who has made that attachment? Nothing can separate us from his love. Man, oh man, that's good news. Let's quickly read on. We'll get started here. Uh, it'll set the stage for next week, and again we'll review, make sure we know where we're going. But in uh, chapter nine, Paul, there's this there's this shift because uh, he's going to spend three chapters now talking about where Israel fits into this plan. I want you to remember that while Paul uh, made his mark as an apostle to the Gentiles, and while he had his greatest ministry success in the Gentile world, remember Paul was a Jew. Paul was a good Jew. And uh, Christianity was still a very Jewish religion in terms of its culture and influence. It was still largely Jews who were converted to Christianity in the the early decades of Christianity. Now, what Paul wants to accomplish here, uh, at least two things, and it's a tricky balancing act because on one hand, he's already addressed the truth that keeping Jewish law cannot save. That the Jews need Jesus exactly, exactly like the Gentiles need Jesus. But he also wants to see, and this is the tricky one, he wants the Jews to see that embracing Jesus Christ is not a rejection of Judaism. It's the complete outworking of Judaism. This is where the Jewish law was leading all along. I love the term, when people talk about Messianic Jews or converted Jews, my favorite term is a completed Jew. Somebody who has followed the Old Testament teachings and everything that that Judaism as a religion teaches to its fullness, which is found only in Jesus Christ. And this is something, this is a battle, you know, Paul would find a very fertile soil for this kind of teaching today because this is something that's very, very entrenched in our culture today, 2,000 years later, that uh, uh, Jews are very offended, many of them, by the idea that you want them to abandon 5,000 years of tradition and culture and, and, and family and, all, and the land and everything else to embrace Christianity. And that's not the way we want Jews to look at it. But Christian versus Jew, it's been seen that way for millennia now. Uh, And the Jews have been persecuted by people who claim to be Christians. There's a sign. I wish I'd looked this up because I just now thought of it. Uh, But there's a sign, I think, in Auschwitz. Uh, You you can tour the the old concentration camp there, and there's a sign there that says something like, Here, uh, the Jews suffered greatly at the hands of the Christians. Christian has almost replaced the word Gentile in their vocabulary. And it's sad, because there have been some horrible things done in the name of Christ. But it wasn't Christ doing those things. It wasn't his true church doing those things. Just because they called themselves Christians, because they did it in the name of the church, because they did it in the name of Jesus, you can't, you've, you've got to divorce that from the person of Jesus Christ himself. And so here's Paul, the greatest champion of Christianity, Planting churches, building churches, raising leaders, begging, pleading, doing everything he can. Becoming all things to all men that he, he might by all means win a few, win some. He desperately wants to see people come to Christ. And here he's going to give us his heart for the Jews. And he says here to begin with in chapter 9, uh, first few verses here, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the, in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. This is his heart. They consider Paul an enemy because Paul's out there trying to destroy Judaism, they think. And what Paul is saying is that if he could... He would almost go to hell if it meant the Jews would go to heaven. He would trade his salvation for theirs. Almost. Nothing compares to Christ. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. This is what he would be willing to do if it were possible. He knows it's not possible. There's only one substitute and that's already been done. That was Jesus Christ. He became accursed so that we could inherit heaven. And Paul's saying, just like Jesus, I would do it. I would do it if I could, but I can't. But this is his heart. This is the heart of an evangelist, a true evangelist, somebody who truly loves the people he's trying to reach. Let me read the next few verses, because this is where it really sets the stage for what we're going to read next. In chapter 4, in Praise and Worship Team, you could be coming up here. Uh, Chapter 9, verse 4, Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall the eternally blessed God. Before I read on, because I'm going to, look at what he's saying. This This is his picture of the Jews. These are the ones... That everything the world knows about God came through. When God gave a law to show who he was like, who did he give it to? He gave it to the Jews. When God began covenant relationship with mankind, who did he do it through? He did it through the Jews, starting with Abraham. And he's the God of the promises. Promises that pertain to all of humanity, but given to And through the Jews, the Israelites. And ultimately, finally, here's what he finally says to their credit. Not only is all of that true, but the Messiah, the Christ himself, the Savior of the world. How did he get here? He came through the Jews. A straight male lineage all the way back to Abraham. But, verse 6, it is not that the word of God has taken no effect... This is the big question. If God has been so about Israel and used them so mightily, then why are the Jews as a whole, even though there are thousands of them, and even though the church is growing, and even though the early converts were mostly Jews, Jews as a whole are digging in their heels and fighting against Paul, fighting against Christianity. And he's saying, why? If God has used them so mightily, and if it's true, how could God abandon them like that? If it's the word of God, why isn't it affecting the Jews, his people? It is not, verse 6, that the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now what does that have to do with salvation? This is what he's saying. And this is an eye-opening verse. If you've been paying attention to everything Paul's saying about the Jews. Because we see the Jews and the Jews saw themselves as every person who could physically trace their roots back to Abraham. What made them special? We're sons of Abraham. And Paul's saying, in God's eyes, that was never the case. And you're like, what? Yes, it was. No, it wasn't. Yes, there were all these many, many multiplied thousands of Jews who were descended from Abraham. And, and he'll say here, but you can count them. If they numbered like the sands on the seashore, only certain ones are called, only certain ones are named. It's not, just, it's, it's not a matter of the DNA It's not a matter of tracing the lineage back. The only person who was ever a Jew in God's eyes, true Israel in God's eyes, were the ones who believed. And he points to a specific promise. He doesn't say everybody that is born from the seed of Abraham is going to be saved. He says uh, the promise, specifically, the child of promise is Isaac. Isaac, how do I put this? Just as you and I are born into sin, Isaac was born in sin too. But Isaac, you know, remember Abraham was promised a child and he thought, well, since God wants me to have a child, I'll take matters matters in my own hand. He has a relationship with, uh, a sexual relationship with the handmaiden of his wife, this Egyptian maid they found in Egypt, and decided, well, since Sarah's too old to have kids, maybe I can have kids with this this, uh, gal, Hagar, and they succeed, and God says, no, 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 no the child is going to be yours and Sarah's. I'll be back in a year from now, and you'll have, you'll have this child, Isaac. That's the child of promise. It's not, Abraham, you're bringing nothing into this deal. The important thing is not what you are contributing genetically to this. It's my promise that makes any of this matter. And therefore, what, what can these people talk about? Oh, that's so important that I pass on my DNA, pass on my genes. You know, this was something, uh, I'll be honest with you, when, when Beth and I uh, were going through our struggles uh, many, many years ago, before we had children, I had to ask myself, how important is it to have biological offspring? I want, everybody wants that. It's, it's in us. We're supposed to want it. We're, we're made to multiply, but it wasn't happening for us. And I had to get to the point, we talked about adoption long before we realized we were going to struggle having natural children, uh, biological children but now I had to get to the point where I'm a faith guy if, if we adopt, is it going to be because I'm settling because I don't want to settle for something that in my mind is second best and it dawned on me, you know what everything important that I can put in this boy is from the word of God it's from the spirit of God there is nothing in me genetically that's going to make him more fit for the kingdom do you understand that? The only thing of value that I can put in him is from the Spirit of God. So I said, okay, we'll adopt. And I'll form him into my image. But so far. <laughs> and this is what God's saying. You think you're special because, because of your DNA? Your That's not what this was ever about. The only thing that made Abraham special was that he believed me. The only thing that made Isaac special is because he was a specific promise. The only thing that's going to make you a true Jew, a true Israelite, is to believe. He's saying of all the millions of Israelites, the only ones that God ever recognized were the ones who had faith in him all along. So he's saying it's not that the word of God has no effect. It's not that God has abandoned Israel. It's that most of the people who call themselves Israel aren't Israelites in the first place. May I I offer my opinion that the same is true of many who call themselves Christians. That's been true. Now, you go back 50 years where people who were self-identifying Christians uh, numbered in the high 90, 90 percentile. You know, 95, 95 to 99 percent of people you'd meet on the street 50 years. Yeah, I'm a Christian. They weren't, though, were they? Did they have an actual born-again relationship with, with Jesus Christ, with God through Jesus Christ? No, they went to church. They had some vague idea about God, but they weren't true Christians. So people talk about, well, the percentage is so much lower now same number of people it's just that people are finally realizing why well, call myself a christian if i really don't believe it they're just being more honest not that there hasn't been a falling away all right uh, uh keller tim keller points out uh, brilliantly i think that the difference we're seeing in the last days is not that p- some people say well there's going to be a mighty revival some people say there's going to be a mighty falling away he says no it's just a more of a clear-cut difference There's going to be less of this, less unbelief in the church and less belief outside of the church. There's just going to be a much, people who believe are going to be clearly distinct from the people who don't believe. And the people who never did believe are just going to be bolder in their unbelief. This is a time of great revival. but people coming to Christ are going to be boldly and obviously for Christ. Stand up. Because if we're going to be the children of God, if we're going to be the true Israel of God, and this is what Paul, this is one of the great things he's going to write about later is that all the promises that God gave Israel, his people, and you think, wow, they're for the Jews. And Paul's like, good news. That's you. The promises that God made to his people. The true Jew is the one who's a Jew Jew inwardly. It's not your physical lineage. It's certainly not circumcision. It's do you believe the promise? What is the promise? That in the fullness of time, God would send his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and that he would bear the full penalty and the full weight of your sin. The sin that all of creation has been groaning under since the garden, Jesus began to he began the work of redemption. He completed the work of redemption, and we are the ones who are who all creation looks to to see the outworking of that redemption. We work it out not to earn our salvation, but to show it to a world who needs to see it. The promise is to you and your children. The promise is to everyone who believes, if you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ.